you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. We are working our way uh, slowly through the book of Hebrews, as is our custom, uh, taking the Word of God as it's written just uh, slowly, so that we don't pick and choose, so that we don't only submit to the things we want to hear, but we submit to what we need to hear, what God has chosen to reveal uh, to us. We're in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 4. We'll read verses 4 through verse 12. Listen now to God's word. The Bible says this, it says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of God's word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help him, help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. When I was growing up, I can remember uh, this moment uh, where I went out to dig worms in my grandmother's compost pit uh, so that I could go fishing. And I can remember getting there with my little shovel and a can to put my worms in. And I bent down and immediately heard the sound of a rattlesnake. And I remember trying to like figure out what to do and trying to catch my breath and trying to figure out where the snake was and which way to run. And I, and I ran inside and I found my granddad and he brought me back out and he came out and he found the snake. And the crazy thing is it wasn't actually a rattlesnake. It was something my granddaddy called a puff adder, which makes the noise of a rattlesnake with its mouth. But it scared me to death. It sobered me. It woke me up. And I didn't go fishing that day. Today, this text is a lot like that. This text is something that should scare us to death. As I was thinking about snakes, I remembered uh, a rhyme from when I was a kid. Uh, red on yellow, kill a fella. Red on black, friend of Jack. This rhyme meant to help us differentiate between an eastern coral snake, which is a deadly venomous snake, uh, and between that and a king snake, a banded king snake, which is an incredible snake, a snake you want in your yard. If you kill one, you're just a terrible human being. Um, you can tell Jesus I told you. It'll be fine. Um, king snakes eat other snakes. They are, uh, my granddaddy would whoop you if he found you uh, messing with his king snake. Um, eastern coral snake, deadly. King snake, 
awesome. They look just alike to the untrained eye. Almost impossible to tell the difference unless you have been trained to tell the difference. And today we run into a similar passage. We run into a, a similar thing. The way that we heard in Matthew uh, that there's a field full of wheat, but somebody has sown weeds in it. And those weeds and wheat look so alike that you cannot tell them apart until the final harvest. And if you were to, to try to differentiate them before that, you would do irreparable damage uh, to the wheat, to the church. Today we see here this crazy verse, verse 4, a verse that I would, um, that just is sobering. It starts off by saying, it is impossible. It is impossible for people to be brought back to repentance if they have once been enlightened, if they have already tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of God's word and the powers of this coming age and then fallen away. It is impossible. The word impossible in Greek just means impossible. And I don't much like it, but there's uh, four ways people try to interpret this section of Hebrews. Because it tends to, to wake us up and to make us real, real anxious. The four ways, just really briefly, the first uh, would be something in what's theologically called the Armenian tradition. Uh, you might, the Armenian tradition most often kind of comes out in, um, in free will traditions. That our will is essentially good um, and that we can choose uh, right and wrong. Um, but it was... And in that case, these are people who are currently saved, but then they uh, renounce the faith and they lose their salvation. The second way to think about this is that um, the people who are described here are saved and they don't lose their salvation. They just lose their crown. You'll hear people uh, talk about uh, they're still saved. They still get into heaven. They're just going to be in like the remedial leaven of heaven. No crown for them. No jewels in their crown. Uh, no mansion. They just get the shack on the outskirts. The third way is, uh, is to say that these uh, that this is really just a hypothetical situation. That it's talking about saved people. And since saved people can't lose their salvation, uh, this is just a hypothetical, something along uh, the lines of um, something that would be like, now that church has started, if you went back to the beginning and uh, didn't start church, we would not be having church now. But you can't go back in time, and so that whole sentence is just a hypothetical, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and then the final one is that these are not actually believers, but people who look eerily similar to believers, that these are uh, what the Bible will call reprobate. These are, these are uh, people who apostatize. They appear to be believers and they show some fruit, uh, but in the end they are not actually believers. They don't lose salvation because they never had salvation. And that final one is the one that I think uh, does the most justice to the scriptures as a whole and to the book of Hebrews as a whole and to the passage here in particular. You see, uh, Hebrews in the Bible teach the eternal security of the saints, uh, which is uh, colloquially said, once saved, always saved. Uh, that I did not uh, get salvation by anything I've done, and so there's not anything I can do to lose the salvation once it's been given to me, once it's been entrusted to me. And we see this all over the place. Uh, but I love the way Jesus says. In, Jesus, uh, in John chapter 10, verse 27, he says, My sheep know my voice. And no one will take them from my hands. No one will pluck them from my hands. At that moment, he's talking to a crowd of people. And some of them uh, won't, are, are kind of on the outskirts. And he says, you are not my sheep. 
because you do not listen to what I say. You do not know my voice. You do not obey me. But in John 10, 27, he says, no one will pluck my sheep out of my hands. Uh, In Hebrews, the same letter we're already in, in uh, chapter 10, verse 10, he's going to go on to say something like this. He's going to say, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ once and for all. Notice the tense there. The tense is past tense. This has already happened. We have been made holy once for all. And so there's this, what we call the security of believers, uh, the steadfastness of believers, that it is about Jesus' holding us, Jesus' faithfulness. A few weeks ago, about a month ago now, Achilles sang a beautiful song called, He Will Hold Me Fast. That Jesus will hold me fast. That I trust My faith is in Jesus' faithfulness, in Jesus' faithfulness to his Father and to me. We see throughout Hebrews and the Bible, uh, we're taught the perseverance of the saints, that saints are those people who persevere to the end. Uh, Jesus taught this uh, in the parable of the soils, the four soils we read last week. Remember, a sower goes out and scatters seed, and uh, some of it falls along uh, the path, and it gets trampled, and it never comes up. And then uh, he throws some more out there and it falls among the rocks and it quickly sprouts. But because it has no root, it dies, it withers. And then some uh, fell among the weeds, among the briars and thorns, and it came up, but it was choked by the cares of this world and it never matured. But finally, some fell among the good soil and it grew up and bared a harvest, some 10, some 30, some 100 fold. We see uh, that, uh, that saints are those who persevere to the end. We already saw this in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, uh, which says, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold, to our, if we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. We have come, past tense, we've, this has already happened, we have already come to share in Christ, and our holding that conviction firm to the very end is just evidence of something that has already happened in the past. But perseverance is evidence of election. Uh, verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, knows that what he's talking about here is a real uh, temptation. And so he's going to say in Chapter 10, verse 36, he says, you need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. The saints are those who persevere. But then what are we supposed to do with these incredible descriptors in Hebrews 6, um, verses 4 and 5? Look how these people are described. They're described as having been enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift having shared in the Holy Spirit, having tasted the goodness of God's word, and having tasted the powers of the coming age. These people look incredibly like believers. It's really hard to read those. When I read them and I look at them, I say, that sounds like a Christian. That sounds like um, a saved man or woman. That sounds uh, like that. But if we stop and we think really carefully about this, um, the Bible doesn't use any language here uh, that distinctly, exclusively describes believers. They're not called sanctified, justified. They're not called saints. They're not called um, beloved. They're not called holy. They're not called adopted or children or born again. Um, They're not called indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
And so what do these words mean? Well, the first uh, there says, who have once been enlightened. To be enlightened is just to have light shine on you. But there is an immense difference uh, between having light shine on you and receiving that light. You know what I'm saying? There's a, a difference between having the light shine on you and having the light indwell you. The difference between receiving the light and becoming the light. You remember in John uh, chapter 3, you have uh, John 3, 16, this incredible uh, verse that many of us know. But at the end of that chapter, the end of John 3 says this. It says, this is the verdict then. Light has shone into the world, but men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. That light has shone into the world, but it was rejected and has been rejected and will be rejected by many, many, many people. That doesn't mean they weren't shone upon. It just means it's been rejected. And so I can be shined on without um, being, uh, without receiving that light, without taking it into me. And the next scripture says, who have tasted the heavenly gift. This heavenly gift is almost um, certainly Jesus They've tasted, they've seen the generosity of God, the grace of God displayed in Jesus. They've learned about Jesus and his historical life and his sacrificial death. And they've uh, heard enough about Jesus uh, to see that that, that that is in some sense a gift, a heavenly gift from heaven that he was. If we go on, it says they shared in the Holy Spirit. They shared in the Holy Spirit. Uh, the word uh, shared is, is uh, can be translated partakers. It can be. Um, like associated with is the best way to talk about it. Um, it's the same word that describes the business relationship between uh, James and John and Andrew and Peter as business partners. They share in the business. Um, this is, uh, people have been around the Holy Spirit. They have um, been blessed by the Holy Spirit uh, by being a member of the community of God where the Holy Spirit lives, by being in a church. Uh, they have seen the Holy Spirit do uh, crazy stuff. They've seen the Holy Spirit minister and heal. They've seen the Holy Spirit comfort and convict. Uh, they have uh, shared in the Holy Spirit by being in a church that believes in the Holy Spirit, that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It goes on to say they've tasted the goodness of God's word. They've heard and often agreed with the word of God. And they've gotten good advice from the word of God for their lives. And they've even seen that the Bible is a good source of wisdom. Um, but they've just tasted it. And finally, it says they've tasted the power of the coming age. They've seen miracles is what this basically means. They've seen people healed. They've seen lives renovated and, and upended by the gospel. They've seen the blind see and the deaf hear. Um, they've seen um, people who were so far gone come alive in Jesus. These descriptors are super close to those of believers. But again, none of it is used exclusively for believers. None of it is used exclusively to talk about a saved one. And so we might start to ask um, these people who've done all this, they actually have known and tasted and seen the gospel and God's goodness, but they've walked away. And with words and actions, they have started to publicly mock Jesus. Uh, a theologian, yeah, we're good. A theologian named Wayne Grudem describes them this way. He says, quote, at this point, we may ask what kind of person is described by all these terms. These are no doubt people who have been affiliated closely with the fellowship of the church. They have had some sorrow for sin. They have clearly understood the gospel. 
they have come to appreciate the attractiveness, attractiveness of the Christian life and the changes that come about in people's lives because of becoming a Christian. They have probably had answers to prayer in their own lives and felt the power of the Holy Spirit at work around them, perhaps even using some of the spiritual gifts in the manner that unbelievers do uh, in Matthew chapter 7 when they come and say, have we not casted out demons in your name? Have we not uh, cured people in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, uh, you evildoers, I never knew you. They've been exposed to the true preaching of the word and they've appreciated much of its teaching. But then in spite of all of this, they commit apostasy and they crucify the son of God on their own account and they hold him up to contempt. Then they are willfully rejecting all of these blessings and they're turning decidedly against them. These are people who have heard Jesus, heard his Bible, seen what he can do in other people's lives, have been associated with the church and God's people, have moved in and out amongst them, have um, very likely uh, gone through the rites of this. There's a chance, and I think it's a pretty decent chance, uh, that that phrase enlightenment um, was associated with baptism, that tasting the heavenly gift was associated with communion, uh, that shared in the Holy Spirit obviously has to do uh, with uh, the church, and then tasting the goodness of the word has to do with uh, Preaching and the proclamation of the word and powers of the coming age has to do with intercessory prayer, the offices and the actions of a good biblical church. They've seen all this. They've gone through the motions of church. You may ask, where do we see these in the Bible? Is this even possible? How could this be possible? How could you know all this stuff and then turn and walk away? Well, the prime example of this is none other than who? Judas Iscariot, right? Judas, who saw Jesus firsthand. Judas, who lived with Jesus for three years. Judas, who uh, didn't have the Holy Spirit, but had the presence of Jesus. Like, had the Holy Spirit in the, laying on the mat next to him. Eating at the table with him. Judas, who was fed hand to mouth by Jesus, literally and figuratively. Judas, who saw the, blame, the blind see and the deaf hear. And in the end, betrayed Jesus, apostatized, disowned him. We even see in Judas's life some remorse, right? After Jesus has been uh, publicly tortured to death, Judas is sorry. But we know that that's not sorrow uh, that leads, that wasn't repentance that leads to salvation. That was remorse for the consequences of his actions. In the Old Testament, uh, we've been talking about Hebrews that set up this enormous, elaborate parallel uh, between our experience as believers when we've been set free from sin and slavery, when we've been made children of God and led in this wilderness road through this life until we get to the promised land of life in God's kingdom forever. We've talked about how our experience parallels the experience of those uh, our ancestors in the wilderness on the exodus between uh, Egypt and the promised land. You remember the Israelites heard God's word. They saw incredible miracles. They saw the plagues in Egypt. They saw a manna from the sky, water from the rock. Uh, they, saw, um, they saw God uh, speak to Moses in a pillar of fire and cloud. Uh, they, saw, uh, they had the word of God come to them in the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, they had seen miracles. They had heard God's word. They had been delivered and ransomed. And when they came to the promised land, what did they do? They would not go in. They refused to believe God's promise, and they said, we'll stay here. 
And so you're trying to think, how does this happen? How can this happen? Uh, well, John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says this. It says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would remain with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. No one who denies the Son has the Father. No one who denies the Son has the Father. And whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Jesus would say, if you reject me before men, I will also reject you before my Father. You see, rejecting Jesus, Jesus is the only uh, Son of God. He is the exact representation of God's being. So if you don't like Jesus, you will not like God because they are one and the same. There's no other God to like turn to. You can't say, ah, I'm not real cool and keen on this Jesus, but his dad's pretty cool. It won't work. Uh, I think about this a lot. We know, um, so we see that uh, this is a group of uh, people who've apostatized, who've, who've turned away uh, from the church and who've gone out from the Hebrew church, who've stopped going in and started mocking God uh, with their actions and stuff. We know this because we're going to see this enormous shift in verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. He's differentiating. You can see that in a couple ways. Uh, first through four through um, seven, four through six, he's talking about those and them. From nine to twelve, he talks about we and you. He separates them using pronouns, but he also talks about these who've gone out and you who have the better things of salvation. I can think about people who uh, use sentences like, I used to be a Christian, but now. I think of men like Bert, Bart Ehrman at uh, Carolina, the head of the religion department there. That's not a knock on Carolina. There's men just like him at Duke, too. Um, I think about a kid I grew up with in church. Uh, we went through confirmation together and catechism together. We memorized the Westminster Shorter Catechism. catechism and when we did, we were given a gold cross. I don't think I have mine anymore. But we were given this gold cross. And I can remember when we got to high school, um, this, this guy, we'll call him Ralph for now, and dressed up on opposite day during homecoming week where uh, guys dressed as girls and jocks dressed as nerds and nerds dressed as uh, jocks and uh, you uh, dressed opposite. I can remember Ralph came in wearing a cross because he uh, was publicly an atheist and everybody knew it came in wearing his catechism cross. This is an enormous warning, a huge warning. This should sound like the sound of rattlesnakes, and it should make us really work hard because there are a lot of false Christians in the world. There are a lot of false believers in every church. There are a lot of uh, false believers who exhibit the qualities of a Christian, but who are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They are not justified or sanctified. They know the gospel, but they do not know Jesus. They know about him, but they do not love him. They go through the motions, baptism and communion and tithing, but they are not regenerate. This should wake us up to say, do not grow cold. This should spur us in our love. He's going to summarize what he's teaching here in, in verses 7 and 8 with an image of, uh, of two fields. One field, that, two fields that get the same rain. You can imagine them next to each other. They get the same sunshine, the same rain, everything. But this field produces no fruit and just thorns and thistles. And this produces fruit. He said the one that produces no fruit will be burned and cursed. The one who produces fruit will receive the blessing of God. 
It's eerily similar to what Jesus says in John chapter 15 when he says, Abide in me and you will bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. If you do not apart from me or you do not bear fruit, you will be cut off and cast into the fire. Jesus said, Abide in me and abide in my love. You were appointed to bear fruit. You were appointed to bear fruit, to abide in Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean to abide in Jesus? Practically, uh, John chapter... John chapter um, 15, verse 7 will say, Remain in me, and my words will remain in you. And if you abide in Jesus, there's a hunger for uh, God's word, to memorize it, to hide it in my heart. If you don't have that hunger for God's word, ask God for it. Ask God for a craving for his scripture and a desire to understand it. He said, he goes on to say, ask anything you wish, uh, anything you wish, and it will be granted unto you that uh, real people who, uh, real Christians abide in Jesus by praying, by talking to God in Jesus all the time. And then he goes on to say, you show yourselves to be my disciples. You remain, if you keep my commandments, you remain in my love. Disciples are apprentices to Jesus who abide in him by doing what he says. Disciples are apprentices to Jesus who are learning all he knows about God and life and learning to live life his way by doing what he tells us to do. The goal of being an apprentice is to come to be just like Jesus, to have the same faith and knowledge and character that Jesus has. And so just bluntly, what is this fruit? Well, we summarize this fruit all the time at church by saying more and better disciples. A fruit is all about reproduction, right? If you have uh, grape vines and they produce grapes and you do not pick those grapes, but you let those grapes fall to the earth, what do those grapes do? They contain in them seeds. Those seeds then put forth new vines. Fruit is all about reproduction. Like it's all, like fruit is how, plant, how fruit trees reproduce. It's how they have babies. They, they make an orange and then the orange falls and then the orange grows into a tree. And so our faith should be reproducing by making other disciples, by making more disciples, by reproducing our faith in our kids, by uh, reproducing our faith in our spouses and our co-workers. But it also has to do with the character of Jesus, the better disciples, that we should reproduce the character and the faith of Jesus. This is what Galatians chapter 5 calls the fruit of the Spirit. You remember the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do those describe your life? You can see in uh, the end of this, when he separates, when he turns to the church, he says, now, look at this, we are, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case the things that have to do with salvation. Hebrews is convinced that the large majority of people in the church are true saints, that they are the beloved of God. And he goes on to point this out, beloved by God and the preacher. That word dear friends is actually the word, um, it's beloved. It it comes from the word agape, which means uh, love, and it just means the beloved. We speak like this, uh, beloved, the beloved of God. And we're convinced of better things Why are they convinced of better things? Look at the verses. He says, we are convinced of better things, things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. God will not forget your work and the love you have shown him or shown his name is what it actually says. 
as you have helped his people and continue in them. What we see here is an immense difference between abiding in Jesus and abiding in in Jesus' love and welcoming the Holy Spirit's renovation and what was just described above, where people just wanted a taste, where people just wanted to watch the Holy Spirit. They just wanted to snack on the word of God. Let me be blunt. If you think being a Christian is about the minimum entrance requirements to heaven, then you are not one. If following Jesus is just, what's, what do I need to do to make sure I get into the good place when I die, then you're looking for minimum entrance requirements. And, and, and Christianity is not about minimum entrance requirements. You want some kind of magic prayer to assure you of heaven so you can get back to doing whatever you want to do. That shows that you don't want a God. You want to be God and you want to use God to serve you, to make sure he gives you what you want. You still worship yourself, and your life is still run by self-will. And you want to use Jesus as a get-out-of-jail-free card. And that makes a mockery of the cross and re-crucifies him. Being a Christian, on the other hand, is about a love affair with Jesus. It's about being ravaged by the love of Jesus. It's about building your life on his teachings because you love him. It's about being his apprentice and becoming just like him and listening to him. And that's why he says we're convinced of better things because being a Christian is a better life. Many of us look for an easier, softer way to experience God and transformation and healing and deliverance from our demons, but we could not find one because this is the easier, softer way. Jesus is the one who gives us better things, things that are better than verses 4 and 5. No longer is it just getting a taste, but it's feasting on the word of God. No longer is it just being enlightened. It is being lit up by Jesus and then shining that light into the world. I don't want to have the light shine on me. I want the light shining through me. It is not just about seeing miracles. It is about being a miracle. It is about seeing, displaying the miraculous love of God in my life as he changes and reforms me. It is about feasting on his goodness that I cannot be satisfied with just a taste of him. And then he keeps on going on. He says the evidences of this are a love for God's name, which means I praise his name above all else. My greatest goal in life is to lift high the cross and to proclaim the love of Christ to all around me, that everything I want is of immense worth in Jesus. This is why if I see the worth of Jesus and then I turn back to what the world has for me, if I turn back away from Jesus and say, yeah, Jesus is good, but he's not good enough. There is nothing better. God doesn't have anything else. He's unleashed the storehouse of heaven on us in his son Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit. And we see this in loving God. And because we love God, because we cherish his name, because our greatest joy is being with him and in his character and in his uh, presence and in his reality, and then making that known to people around him, that comes out of us in these incredible ways. It says, the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. You see, people who love God start to love God's church. People who love God start to love God's church. And Hebrews is real, real, real concerned about this. Hebrews is incredibly concerned about this. In Hebrews chapter 10, it'll say, let us not give up meeting together as some have done. And so brought condemnation on themselves. That there are no such things as Lone Ranger Christians. There are not Christians without churches. Because if you love God, then you will love his people. 
Do you know how far your relationship with me will go if you constantly badmouth my wife? You know how far that'll go? Not real far. Maybe as far as a right cross if the Holy Spirit doesn't save me. You cannot badmouth a man's wife to his face and then expect him to be your best friend. But friends, there are a lot of people who want to badmouth the church not remembering the church is the bride of Christ. And still expect to be Jesus' best friend. Talk trash on his beloved, on men and women he died for. Men and women worth his sanctifying blood and then still expect to be buddy-buddy, to be besties. So let me just finish with these really practical things. First, be warned, be warned. It is a dangerous thing to traffic in Christian matters with no intent to trust Jesus or to surrender to him. It is a dangerous thing to give Jesus a part of your life and not to give him the whole thing. He is jealous and he will not accept a piece because he loves you too much. Be warned, believers, it is a dangerous thing to cool in your affection, to walk in known sin, and not to grow. You see, these people can't be brought to repentance. It is a dangerous thing to not be constantly repenting, to be not constantly realizing the consequences and the destruction of your sin, but also mourning the loss of that relationship. There's a difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is sad I got caught. Repentance is sad I did the thing. And so let me ask you, are you doing a better job hiding your sin so you don't get caught? Or are you doing everything in your power to put that sin to death because you hate it? Because you know it is killing you and killing your relationships and stealing joy from your life. And you know God is trying to give you something infinitely better. you're content settling for your sin the crazy thing is God will let you have it he will not coerce you he will only woo you he will only speak tenderly to you and so let me just add, let me just say this too be comforted by evidence of fruit be comforted by a desire in your heart for holiness. Be comforted by evidence of love for God's church in your heart. Be comforted by a godly sorrow and a hatred for sin. Be comforted if you hunger and thirst for God's word, if you love God's people, if you have a desire to serve. Be comforted when you see these evidences in you because they are not natural. They are only gifts of the Holy Spirit. Be comforted if you see evidence in your life of growth, if you see evidence in your life of holiness, if you see deliverance from past sins, those things that used to trip you up don't trip you up anymore. You find yourself able to love people you used to hate. You find yourself forgiving people you used to resent. Rejoice. Celebrate. For those are the better things that make us excited, that give me confidence, that make me convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. 
And then lastly, let me just say this, because I think we think about this, and first we get really scared about our own salvation, and that's not what they want us to do. He wants to sober us, but he also wants to comfort us. And then lastly, uh, we get really anxious about those other people in our lives. Can we just be honest about that? All of us know somebody who used to go to church and doesn't go to church anymore. Right? And you should be scared to death for them. You should. You should be begging God for their hearts. You should be pouring over the throne of heaven, asking God for their hearts, asking God to bring them to repentance, asking God uh, to call them back to himself, asking God to show them. In the meantime, you don't, I don't know. I love the wheat and the tares story because I don't know who's wheat and who's tares until the very last judgment. And even then, it's not my job. But I can ask questions. One of my favorite lately is, hey, I know you used to go to church. Why did you give up? I'm sure you have a really good reason for not going anywhere. Why don't you tell me? And when they give you a really good reason, say, yeah, I used to hate that about church too. But now I see how even the annoying people were put there to teach me to love people I don't want to love. I used to hate the fact that church asked me for a pledge card until I realized that that was a chance for me to learn generosity, for me to live humbly, to live simply. I used to hate the music because I just don't like singing until I realized that God wants me to worship him with all of me. And if I can't worship him with all my body, all my voice, all my energy by singing, how am I going to worship him on a basketball court? or in the office party, or around the water cooler. I used to hate preachers who talked in high flutin', tootin' flutin' language, but then I realized I know everything there is to know about restrictor plates and NASCAR races. I can break down an engine. If I can learn the components of an engine, I can learn theology. If I can learn all the chemicals that go into hair dye, and nail treatments, crazy technical data, I can probably learn the difference between sanctification and justification. I can probably learn. Let's pray. God, we need your tough words to us because our flesh wants to constantly try to manipulate you into serving us. We constantly fall in love with the things you give us and not in love with you. So God, if we start to fall in love with your blessings but not in love with you, take your blessings away. That we only love you. That we love you first and foremost. That we love your name, that your name would be the passion of this church, that lifting high the cross would be the only thing we care about, and that that would uh, dissolve our preferences and our pettiness. But it would also soften our hearts and direct our focus to those who have given up on you. I remember now what you said to Mary is, such a, is anything too hard for God? Your disciples were amazed at salvation and they said, how can anyone be saved? And you, Jesus, looked at him and you said, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God, in the places in our life where it looks impossible for so-and-so to repent, 
for so-and-so to come back to church, for so-and-so to trust you and surrender their lives to you. We declare that all things are still possible for God. Soften hearts. Use us, not just to shine light, but to be light. Not just to show miracles, but to be a miracle. Maybe today you realize you've been going through motions, but you haven't fallen in love with Jesus. You've been loving God because of the things he gives you, but not for himself. You can stop and become a Christian right now. It's as easy as ABC. A, admit you're a sinner. B, believe in Jesus that he died to save you. And C, commit to follow him for the rest of your life. Let's pray this out in Jesus' name.